Welcome back to Now, the podcast celebrating a variously compiled world of pop. In each episode, a variety of fabulous guests and I explore favourite compilation albums, as well as considering how these collections shaped pop culture and now fondly stand as time captures for our own musical and life milestones. I hope that you will enjoy the pop memories in this episode. Please follow the show through your favourite podcast provider and join in with me, Ian, on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Joining me for this episode is Mark Savage. Mark is the BBC's music correspondent who's interviewed some of the biggest names in pop, including five of the artists on this episode's featured compilation. But more of this, hopefully, later. Mark grew up in Northern Ireland and joined the BBC 25 years ago as a sound engineer before switching lanes to become a producer and reporter. And seamlessly linking into this very podcast... Mark also got to join the Now team in the studios at Abbey Road in 2018 as they compiled Now 100. Mark, welcome back to Now. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Oh, you are more than welcome. So, BBC Music Correspondent, I'm just looking at the diary. Two months into this year, we've had Sound of 2023 and the Grammys. Busy then? Yes, because not only that, we've had Madonna's tour going on sale, Beyonce's tour going on sale, Ticketmaster hold in front of the US Senate. Uh, We've unfortunately had a lot of very high-profile music deaths. Um, Terry Hall just before Christmas, Jeff Beck, uh, Christine McVie. It's been a very sad time because because of those stories, but also a very busy time because the music industry is just in high gear. Sometimes there's stuff that just happens in the news that you have to grasp onto and and cover from the moment it happens. The Madonna tour was like that. There was suddenly a huge amount of interest from the audience, but also from our editors at the BBC who wanted to know more about it and more about why the tickets were the prices they were. Um, But also you want to do stuff that's interesting to you. So I, you know, I did an interview with Ray, uh, the pop singer, um, just last week, um, who's just got an incredible story from being signed to a four album deal at the start of her career, then being told she wasn't allowed to release any of those albums and fighting to get out of her contract. And then the vindication of having a number one single. And I talked to her on the day that it went to number one and we were on the phone for maybe an hour. And I would say she cried for about half of that. You know, I grew up in Northern Ireland, which is not the music epicentre of the world. And certainly when I was a child during the Troubles, bands didn't come and tour there. And um, there wasn't a lot of music to see unless you were into the folk scene. So to be part of those stories, to be a witness to them, because I'm not under any illusions that I have any influence <laughs> on the music industry, but to actually just be part of that moment is incredible. And it's a privilege. People like people's stories. I still think there's there's something to be said for the human element of finding out people's backstories, where they've come from. You know, quite often I have artists will say to me, how do we get coverage? You know, if you're doing something with BBC Introducing. And unfortunately, maybe a lot of the time the answer is you've got to have a compelling story. You've mm. got to have a hook that will make people want to find out more about you. And that can be something as simple as you know, the mystique 
of an artist like Prince, who never told anybody anything and kept everybody guessing. Mm. Or it can be something just as simple as the origin story of a band, Flo, who won the BBC Sound of 2023. You know, they are, to all intents and purposes, a manufactured girl band. Mm. But they're a manufactured girl band who took control. Yeah. Who in the audition process, had been put into rival camps and they spotted each other and went to the management and said, no, you're making the wrong choice. We're the three that you should have. And for all of the decades and decades of girl groups that sing about independence, they actually did it. They went and said, we're taking the means of production. We're going to choose what our first single is. We're going to be the bosses here. And it's paid off for them. And, you know, that's not necessarily you know, a deep, personal, ripped-from-your-soul story. Mm. But it's fascinating, and people like to see behind the curtain. Let's rewind before we get to our featured album. Let's talk a bit about growing up. What was what was life like for you growing up, Mark, in Northern Ireland? Uh, how did music come into your life? So probably my earliest memory of music. My dad was a doctor, and he trained at Great Ormond Street. Uh, and so... Although I was born in Northern Ireland and went to school there from, from reception year, uh, there were two years where we were in Manchester and London as he was training. And I remember living in a flat in Hampstead Heath, uh, quite close to Great Ormond Street, and watching Brotherhood of Man doing Figaro on top of the pops. And if you remember that song, just before the chorus, there's a moment where they stamp on the floor three times, yeah. or maybe four times. And I was doing that on repeat every time that song was on the television or every time that song was on the radio, to the absolute horror of my neighbours. But I think that was my parents' first indication that A, I was interested in music, and B, that drumming might be (laughs) the thing that caught my attention. And when we moved back to Belfast, I would go and I would drum on the bin lids in our back garden until my uncle, to my parents' utter horror, bought me a drum kit (laughs) when I was about seven years old. And I think that's probably where the obsession came from, is that I was always playing along to something. And because I was obsessed with the drums, I started to get obsessed with the music as well. Mm. Um, And I started to listen more closely to the parts that were being played and work out how songs were put together. And that's what fired me up, was picking them apart. And then when the 12-inch remix came in in the 80s, Mm. and you were hearing people like, you know, Terry Farley or Shep Pettibone pulling all those elements out and letting you hear them individually, then I got even more into it. And I wanted to be, like all journalists, I wanted to be a musician, not a writer. Um, And I played in bands and we didn't get anywhere, but I very luckily ended up in this position. What about... um purchasing um have you got a record shop that you can remember or was or was it the Woolworths or was it the department stores Belfast was full of them I mean there was the good vibration shop Mm. um where of course you know the the undertones came from um but that was a bit too cool for me that was like the record shop in high fidelity where you were intimidated by the staff um (laughs) but there were loads in Belfast there was golden discs there was the gramophone shop latterly our price and HMV and Virgin. There was a Woolworths. There were a couple of other independent ones that I can't even remember the name of. And I remember when I was 13, 14, 15 with my friends, we would literally go on a tour of record shops every Saturday and Sunday, working out where the records we wanted were the cheapest. Yeah. 
um, and then kind of fighting over who got them. <laughs> and then we'd all return home with our spoils in those big 12-inch shaped plastic bags and, yeah. and, and sit on the floor and listen to them for hours. And I was lucky that I was surrounded with people who had very similar music tastes to me and that were as obsessed with yeah. me. So shout out to Graham and Graham and another Mark uh, if they're listening. There was always that that joy of finding something in a bargain bin. Yeah, there was one shop, and I honestly can't remember the name of it. It might have been called Heroes and Villains. And they would quite often reduce singles to 19 pence after they'd fallen out of the top 40. And so you would go there the day after the charts came out and rummage through that bin looking for the stuff that you'd been wanting to buy but couldn't afford. Yeah, it was was those strategic shopping trips where you knew you're watching the charts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. often, you know, you know, you're talking about those remixes and stuff. I, I, I was, I was just hoovering up 12 inch mixes at that age, and yeah. you'd often go in and look at something at four pounds, uh, you know, and say, right, I'm not going to bother with that because that's going to be 99p next week <laughs> as it starts. To yeah, exactly. That was the way I eked out my pocket money all those years. Well, the first song I bought, apparently, I bought two at the same time on seven inch, which was Sea Moon by Wings. And Dancing Queen by ABBA. Or at least that's the story my parents tell. They, As far as I can remember, or from having looked at it now, they didn't come out at the same time. But perhaps they were in a Woolworths offer or, or some kind of bargain bin. I don't know. So those ones were the first records that I actively, selectively chose. So they were very important. I remember getting Janet Jackson's Nasty in 1986 on 7-inch vinyl just before I went on a trip to America. And this was, like I said, I grew up during the Troubles and I went on what was called a community relations exchange uh, to to Massachusetts. Um, And so there were 30 Catholic children and 30 Protestant children. And I was allowed to buy one record to put on a compilation cassette that I was bringing with me, filled with all the other music that I liked. And Janet Jackson was the one I chose. And I obsessed over that song that whole summer and saved up all the money that my parents had sent me for this trip and ended up buying the Control album on cassette while I was there. So that was a big moment. So many stupid little things. Finding imports uh, when Virgin came to Belfast and getting Japanese bonus tracks that I'd never heard of on Prince Records, EPs that weren't released in the UK, all that stuff. It was just that knowing which shops to go to. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And there were certain shops where where the staff were knowledgeable and would buy stuff in because they knew what the customers liked. And, you know, I, I was very, very into pop, and that's why the Nye albums appealed to me. Mm. Whereas Belfast at the time, there was a lot of country, there was a lot of metal. Pop fans didn't really have much of a say. You know, our sixth form common room, there was no way I would have got control of the stereo there. But I had the upper hand because I had a radio show by that point, ah. <laughs> so I could, I could torture people with my musical taste <laughs> as much as I wanted. But about compilation albums then, grown up? Because you mentioned the other Nye albums. Did they feature... They did. I mean, I was trying to remember because before the Now albums, I had other ones. There was one called Action Tracks, which came out, uh, I think, 1982. It was probably on KTEL. What I remember about it most is the artwork on the front of it. It was very futuristic. It was that kind of parallax, Tron-style artwork. I honestly couldn't tell you what was on it. I went and looked it up today and... It's kind of all right. It doesn't quite have the quality control of a Nye album, but it starts off with Buck's Fizz is the Land of Make-Believe, which was a great song, yeah. and it has Joan of Arc 
by OMD and I Can't Go For That by Hall & Oates. So it's not bad. And I remember another one, possibly in the same series, that had Turning Japanese by The Vapors. And those were songs that I maybe wouldn't necessarily have listened to by choice. Mm. But being exposed to them was one of the things that expanded my my tastes. Yeah. Did you have any of the Top of the Pops albums? Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> and actually, <laughs> the one that I remember us very vividly having was, must have been 76. I can still see the black cover with the... The model, I think it was probably a red mm. outfit. You know, they were gateway for us, I suppose. Did you appreciate when you were younger that they weren't the originals? Could you tell the difference? I don't think I could. No, I don't think I did either. No. You can understand the appeal because they were so cheap. Yeah. And, you know, you look back at it and Elton John's on some of those playing pianos. So I I, the, the standard of musicianship is quite high. And to be able to replicate those songs, yeah. you know, some of them, particularly in the 70s when they were doing Roxy Music. Yeah. And <laughs> trying to replicate Virginia Plain or a David Bowie track. I kind of think, okay, props to them. That's oh, not yeah. an easy task. Yeah. In a, you know, they probably had two days in the studio to do the whole lot. Yeah. You know, you hear these stories. There's probably a really good BBC documentary waiting to happen, actually, he says, pitching. <laughs> about because as you say you know these session guys getting together at 9am and and looking at the top 14 going these are going to be really tricky to do, <laughs> do you know yeah. I, I know wouldn't you but, love to hear the outtakes oh they must be amazing knocking out <clears throat> half a dozen tracks by lunchtime you know it's um yeah i mean absolute props i don't know that my parents had many compilations i was probably slightly disdainful of their music like i remember them having ogden's nut gone flake oh, wow and just thinking why would an album cover look like a box of biscuits? I don't get it. I like their Beatles records, but that was about it. And actually, it turns out they've got great taste. My mum still, in her 70s, is a huge music fan. She's in the Killers fan club and goes to see them every time they come to the UK. My dad's just booked tickets to see Springsteen. You know, I owe a lot of my knowledge of music to them, even if I absorbed it unwillingly at times. This is it, the pig one. 30 original chart hits on one posh double album. Now that's what I call music three. So let's move then, Mark, to your chosen time. You have selected the summer of 1984. I'm going back to now, that's what I call music three, and I am so pleased that we are. Why is that? Now three was my first now. It was the switch from primary school to secondary school. It was the first compilation cassette. I actually still have it here. I've got it here. So what about you? Why the summer of 84? So this was the soundtrack to a family holiday to Tremor, which is a little village near Waterford on the south coast of Ireland. And we would have driven down four or five hours. And that cassette was kind of a gift on the morning of the journey. And I remember, like, you just held up, it's a double box cassette where one side opens the opposite direction to the other. And I remember just fiddling with that for a while, just kind of being obsessed with the mechanics of it. But then the tapes went in. And I don't think those two cassettes left the car stereo for the entire three weeks that we were away. Some of those songs I was hearing for the first time, some were really familiar from the radio. But it's all just tied up with a holiday that really sticks in my mind, because I was... Nine years old, my little sister was five years younger than me, so she was four. 
We had a third sibling on the way. And it was just a really relaxed, easygoing, on the beach, blissful time. You know, when you're eight and nine and nothing really bothers you and nothing matters and you don't have exams coming up and there's none of the kind of peer pressure squabbling at school. It was just a really, really beautiful summer. And that was the soundtrack to it. So these tracks are going to bring back a lot of memories then. Yeah, fewer than I thought when I went back over the track list. <laughs> I think about half of them I was like, do I remember this song? We had one of those cassette players in the car where if you kind of he- half held down the fast forward button, mm, yeah. it would find the spaces in between the tracks. Yeah. So you could skip the ones you didn't like. I think we must have done that a lot. So this is going to be interesting then because I'll be really keen to hear which ones you skipped past. <laughs> as we work our way through before we kind of dig into the tracks let's you know let's kind of contextualize what 1984 looked like where now was this this was the third volume of now it was released on the 23rd of july of 84 it was number one for eight weeks and i was looking back at the at the official chart company stats and now itself between volume one two and three had 14 weeks at number one so this culturally was it, it was the first big year of now so it was mm. really starting to kick off significantly this was the first now to feature its famous logo and the pig was back as well yeah is the first front cover appearance of the yeah. pig isn't it yeah on the back of now one there'd been the the danish bacon advert where it originally came from disappeared on now two and then somebody very cleverly at emi and virgin thought let's get this pig back and he's got shades on Nothing cooler than a pig in shades. Nothing cooler at all. Nothing screams 1984 more, I think, than this cover. <laughs> it's all those kind of neon parallel lines, isn't it? That's it. Inside, do you remember? I mean, I remember the yellow and grey combination. That, of That is headache-inducing, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. I'm going to throw this out here right now before we dig into the tracks, but there is still a perceived notion that 1984 is the best pop year ever. What do you think? It's definitely up there. I'm not sure it's up there and reflected in this compilation because obviously the licensing issues with Sony and Warner Brothers mean that it doesn't have Thriller and it doesn't have Purple Rain and it doesn't have Like a Virgin. There are some great pop songs on this, but obviously the key tracks from the year are completely missing in action. And as fans of this podcast will know, we've talked about the compilation rivalry that kicks off at the end of 1984 Mm. with the hit series, which broke the now chart run because now four at the end of the year only made number two whilst the first hits album which if you look back and i'll whisper this because i know there's people listening it's probably better than now four i'm afraid that i switched allegiance at that point and stuck with the hit series for a couple of years yeah it kind of shines exactly that record company battle that was taking place two tribes one would almost say but we'll come at that in time um (laughs) (laughs) sorry no more no more 84 puns, I promise. I've got to mention this as well, right? You had the cassette version. This is getting proper geeky, but somebody will mention this, I know. At the very beginning of side one, there's a tone. Yes. Yes, right. Which I've looked up. It's called the XDR tone. Well, is it something to do with Dolby? Do you know, I don't know. And I probably could dig into the case to find out. There's probably some way... Uh, of finding it as well. Do you know what? I'm just going to... I've just taken it. I'm going to hold this up to the camera. I didn't even know this was in here. Inside my Now 3 cassette is a 599 sticker, which I've obviously taken off and stuck inside. I think it's WH Smith. What would that be? Adjusted for inflation, that's over £20, isn't it? You know, we probably did pay a lot of money for these. 
1984. Yeah. Uh, do you know what? I've just wikipedia it. Is that terrible? No, while, no. while we're having a conversation, <laughs> I'm sitting here on Wikipedia. Apparently, it was a quality control and duplication process for the mass production of pre-recorded audio cassettes. And essentially, it was a way of making sure that every cassette was up to scratch when oh. it came off the production line. I'm really excited by that. But listeners, come back. Come back. We are going to talk about... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Quick. we've got more of this stuff. We are going to talk about <laughs> music, honestly. I've written here in my notes, nuclear annihilation. Yeah, I'd I'd written something very similar. <laughs> because it is, it is great that the most shiniest pop album of the year is absolutely littered with third world war fear. <laughs> There's a sequence of songs on the cassette one in particular yeah. that are just Utterly paranoid. And, you know, you watch back these Top of the Pops episodes and I can remember that fear growing up. Quick mention for Threads that obviously terrorised and scarred all of us. Um, Thank you, BBC, for that. But you watch back these Top of the Pops clips and it was just balloons and streamers and pink neon amidst this absolute fear that at any moment, (laughs) global annihilation. Let's kick off. We are on side one, track one. We've had our XDR sound. (laughs) And we are kicking off with The Reflex by Duran Duran. It's the perfect opener, isn't it? I often think, am I guilty of this being my first now and therefore thinking it is the best opening track ever? But I think it is the best opening track for any new album ever. It's just a perfect piece of pop. And of course, it's this version, the single version, is a Mm -hmm. Nile Rodgers remix because they'd heard... Nile Rodgers' production on the In Excess song, Original Sin, and thought, we could do with a bit of that. And there's just so much energy, all those samples and the repeating kind of burping noises that have been put on top of it just make it so much more exciting. But even even this, which is a big, shiny pop song, has that undercurrent of paranoia to Mm. it as well, because it's a song apparently about gambling addictions. Simon Le Bon never says what the song's about. He's very protective of it. But apparently there's a lot of lyrics in there that are related to, you know, card games. Uh, the lyrics about the four-leaf clover and dancing on the valentine represent the clubs and the hearts. Um, and there's references to being seriously in debt. I sold the Renoir and the TV set. Yeah. Um, and so apparently the reflex is the lonely child waiting by the park. That's a parent who's so caught up in some gambling den that they don't go and collect their son or daughter from school. Um, so even that yeah. is starting the album on a diner, even though it's a really upbeat, <laughs> incredible pop song. There was always a, a high degree of subversiveness in what Duran Duran do. Definitely. Although they did do a cover of another song on this compilation that is one of the worst cover versions of all oh, time. Oh, come to that one. Yeah, it's <laughs> pretty dire. Um, yeah, now Roger's hugely inspirational in that remix um, because again as good as the Seven and the Ragged Tiger album is the version of, of the reflex on there is not the best. You can hear you can hear what's straining to get out yeah. and he just kind of unlocks the cage and lets it yeah. roar. Yeah. You've got that video as well which is absolutely iconic which was filmed in Toronto on the Singly Silver tour. Just looked so incredibly glamorous at the age of 11. They just they seemed so unreal, didn't they? I mean, they looked like Ken dolls and they made this music that sounded like nothing else. You know, people talk a lot about how they broke America because their videos looked like big budget motion pictures. I mean, it was true. They were larger than life and they kind of set a template for a lot of 
what comes next in the 80s, but they were there first. We are now on to Nuclear Annihilation track number one. And we say <laughs> yes, hello we to the Snoods and Nick Kershaw. Um, <laughs> and I won't let the sun go down. A, a number two hit. Yeah, and this was one of the ones I think that I'd bought on 7-inch before I got the album. But you're right, it's another song about the bomb, the forefinger on the button, is he blue or is he red? And kind of very cheery account of nuclear annihilation, but yeah. still about nuclear annihilation. Two attempts for Nick Kershaw to get this to where it was. Um, I think it That's be- right, it came out a year before, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, came out earlier on, and then Wouldn't It Be Good and Dancing Girls, and it kind of kick-started things back in for him. His highest charting single to date. Unless you count Chesney Hawks. Unless you count Chesney Hawks. Uh, interesting fact, I noticed the synth tune on it was played by Paul Wickens, who eventually went on to play with Paul McCartney's band. Is that right? Yep. That's fascinating. Didn't know that one. It's a great little riff as well, isn't it? Oh, I mean, yeah. it's so upbeat and sunny. It sounds almost Caribbean. So we've had Nile Rogers on Reflex and we have Nile Rogers again on Sister Sledge. Track three, Thinking of You. And that is a weird one, isn't it? I mean, I Won't Let the Sun Go Down in Me had originally been out a year before, but this is five years old, six years old at this point, isn't it? Yeah. And I've never quite understood, there's a big run of Sister Sledge hits, Mm. because Lost in Music and We Are Family came out again in 1984. They'd had limited success in 83 with their album Bet You Say That to All the Girls, uh, and that didn't chart at all. And obviously there was a bit of panic. And I think at that point, the record company thought, let's go back. And Thinking of You hadn't been released as a single. It's an odd one, but actually it sounds, it still sounds incredibly fresh, even in 1984. It does. It's one of my favourite Nile Rodgers guitar riffs, mm. because while he usually does that very staccato chukka-chukka thing, yeah. um, there's a bit more fluidity to it, mm. and it really complements their harmonies beautifully. This, to me, is a summer 84 song. It just perfectly soundtracks it. Nick Kershaw wouldn't let the sun go down, and while it was dusk, this was the perfect soundtrack. (laughs) I'm guessing you've seen Nile Rodgers live. Yes. What an amazing gig that man does. It is, and it's just so full of joy. And him in person, actually. Yeah. um, He is genuinely so happy to be there. Yeah. Happy to be making music in any capacity, whether you see him in a studio. I saw him at the Queen's Jubilee at the summer, and he was just doing a bit of guitar for Duran Duran. Mm. And he was beaming from ear to ear. Yeah. He wasn't even playing his own set. I know. Um, and that joy for life just filters through everything he does. Okay, track four, OMD. Now, let's let us let us rewind one year to OMD 1983, which is called Dazzle Ships. And it's called Lots of Radios Tuning In. And, and, it's, and it's a fabulous album. Record company hadn't thought so. <laughs> <laughs> and here's OMD Mark, Mark II, maybe? Mark 2.5. Yeah, it's definitely a pivot away from the experimental songs about Eastern Europe and genetic engineering, isn't it? Yeah. Although it's, I guess it is still a song about alienation and running away from your problems, but it's much more radio-centric, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's running away from your problems with steel drums. Those steel drum samples are bad. Though. They're not good. The, the production on this is has not aged well. It was a kind of kickstart for them again, you know, back into the mainstream. Um, although I went back and listened to the Junk Culture album that this comes from. It's actually more experimental than people give them credit for. There's still tracks on there that, you know, are, are not entirely mainstream. But here, let's be honest, the singles off that, you had this locomotion, talking loud and clear, Tesla Girls, they are big, shiny pop moments. 
They are very much so. It's kind of Andy McCluskey in in, in Atomic Kitten mode almost, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's yeah, absolutely. And a big number five hit, which was higher than anything off Dazzle Ships. Dazzle Ships an album that has aged really well, though. Oh, it's fabulous. It was panned at the time, but it's de- very definitely been reevaluated since. And the funny thing is, you know, I was nine at the time, so I had no idea that Dazzle Ships no. even existed. No. And so I just assumed that this was the next song after Enola Gay or whatever the previous yeah. one had been. Yeah. And that's kind of what the Now albums do, don't they? They airbrush the bad stuff out of history. And if a band <laughs> can make that leap from the bad album back into the charts, it's like nothing bad ever happened. Yeah. Nuclear Annihilation number two, Ultravox. So... This is based on a book, right, by Neville Shute called yeah. The Beach, mm-hmm. which is about a group of people in Australia who are waiting to die slowly and horribly from radiation poisoning yep. after the Northern Hemisphere has been annihilated in a nuclear holocaust. Yep. So, you know, yeah, normal stuff for the top 10. Yeah. And again, looking back at some of the images of Ultravox, the snood was there as well. And, and I'm not deliberately tying the snood to nuclear annihilation, but, you know, Nick Kershaw, Ultravox, the video was quite traumatising as well. There's images in there of Majur putting his children to bed and then dancing with his wife and and then the windows all explode. I mean, you know, Saturday Superstore guys, really? I know. And it, it, it's even worse than that, isn't it? Because after the windows explode from the nuclear bomb, their sheets are flat because the bodies have been evaporated. That's right. By the heat of the blast. And then the last minute or so of the video is just faked old home video exactly. cinefilm of him and his wife and his kids before they were killed in a nuclear explosion. <laughs> and, you know, top of the pops. Seven oh. o'clock on a Thursday. And, you know, <laughs> what you want to see. Well, you look back now and you think, did we really think that we were going to... Putting that out there, maybe they were expecting, actually, within a year's time, there's not going to be any world anyway, so maybe, maybe this will... You know, I don't know. It was incredibly bleak. I think it was, though. I mean, I... I'm probably too young to remember it seriously, but, you know, I do remember public information films about Mm. what to do in the event of a nuclear accident or a nuclear blast. And certainly there was a lot of rhetoric from America and Russia that made the threat seem very imminent. Nobody was backing down. This was the era of the Star Wars missiles going up into Mm. space to stop the nuclear weapons. So for somebody who is as politically aware and sensitive as Midger, I can see why this was at the forefront of his mind, even if he was writing a pop song. Anyway, Howard Jones wasn't particularly bothered by nuclear war. Um, I I can't see any kind of uh, hidden subtext in Pearl on the Shell. Fourth single from Human Lib album. I like the first two singles from this album, and all I've written beside this track in my notes is the law of diminishing returns applies. <laughs> well, it was. It was It was the fourth single. And actually, even before the end of the summer, it was putting out like to get to know you well. So it was already moving on to the next thing. Yeah, this feels like a, a record company single to keep the interest high and his radio presence yeah, elevated. Absolutely. Interesting fact, the saxophone solo was Davy Payne from Enduring the Blockheads. No way. Yep. So that's twice you've surprised me now with uh, interesting supporting player facts. Takes his pen, notes down twice. Impressed Mark Savage. Excellent. Uh, there's not much else to say about Pearl in the Shell except, yeah, diminishing returns, fourth single. Lamange, don't tell me. Number eight. Now, I don't remember this at all. 
And I didn't mind it when I queued it up and listened to it again. There's some beautifully sampled vocals in the middle eight and it mm. all goes a little bit kind of weird and esoteric as Neil Arthur's chanting over and over again, I can't get a grip. I, I guess it's about a relationship fracturing. Don't tell me I'm the howling wind and don't tell me you're yeah. a wounded star. Yeah. Again, a song that seems to be about a pretty nasty situation that is so unbelievably sprightly. Yeah. And this is a recurring theme, isn't it? 1984. You could basically dress up anything in synth stabs. Yeah. Oh, I guess we call them sad bangers now. Yeah, pretty much so. Yeah. Um, the next single, though, from Blamange was their cover of The Day Before You Came in July. Yes. Which I think is an improvement on the original. Which is... But you know what? It's a, it's a difficult thing to take an ABBA song and improve on it because yeah. they're so meticulously stitched together. Mm. I remember Pete Pafidis once saying... If you were to take an ABBA song apart and have all its constituent elements, they would only fit back together in one particular way, like a jigsaw. Mm. It's not like you could repeat a chorus and it would improve the song. Yeah. They are absolutely perfect yeah. in the form that they arrive in. And so to take one of their songs, albeit a latter day one, mm. and make it better is actually a real sign of, of genius. Yeah. Okay, we're going to finish off side one. Have you fast-forwarded anything yet, by the way, in the car? I think I might have fast-forwarded Blamange because, yeah. I, like I said, I can't remember it for the yeah. life of me. And you're obviously rushing to get to Phil Collins, the NSA one. Yeah, I mean, as a nine-year-old, <laughs> breakup ballads were my bread and butter. <laughs> right, so th this, this was Phil Collins. Um, it was a big US number one. It was number two in this country. Right, I'm going to give you a quick Oscars quiz because this okay. was nominated for Best Academy Award uh, for a song and a film in 1985, but what beat it? You'll get it, you it now. It was What's the one from Officer and a Gentleman? No, you're too early now. No, Ghostbusters. Then I don't know. Ghostbusters was in there. Um, well, okay, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Right, these are the five nominations in which one. Let's hear it for the boy, Footloose. Uh, Great song. Footloose itself, Ghostbusters, Against All Odds, and I just called to say I love you. Oh, it's Stevie Wonder. Of course, it's Stevie Wonder. Do you know the the brilliant fact about I just called to say I love you? It's the first ever Motown song that was a single that didn't fade out. No. Yeah. That's good. That almost And it ends with that beautiful Bon Tempe. Bum, bum, bum. bum, bum, bum. It does. Like he just pressed the synchronised ending oh, button does. on his little Casio keyboard. It does. Sorry, Phil, we're going to talk about you in a second, but <laughs> just going back to see you wonder, that was a hard, hard song as an 11-year-old to like. And in the video, he's got the phone... And he's standing in front of the audience and, oh, oh, yeah, anyway, anyway. My only exposure to Stevie Wonder at that age was that song and Ebony and Ivory, and I hated them both I passionately. They're not great calling cards. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> not. And maybe, maybe Happy Birthday would have been around that time as oh, well. Yeah. But again, yeah. not a patch on his 70s golden period, is it? Oh. I'll not, yeah, I've written this down as well. Number one, twice over. Again, this song after after Phil Collins, Mariah Carey in Westlife, and then Steve Brickstein in January wow. 2005. So you can't keep a good song down, can you, Phil? I mean, it is a great song. And the funny thing is, he'd written it years before, hadn't he? It was part yeah. of the sessions for his debut album, or his yeah. debut solo album, Face Value, and he didn't like it. Mm. And it becomes his first US number one. I mean, that golden period of the Phil Collins from... Face value to no jacket required and but seriously. Yeah. They are perhaps underappreciated, particularly in the UK. Yeah. But he wrote an incredible number of sticky, memorable yeah. ballads in particular. 
and this is one of them finishing up side one do you have to fast forward it to get to the oh, end? Yeah, yeah, you do actually, because it wasn't the equal amount of tape on each side. Pop fans, <laughs> there we go. So we're on the other side. Um, was was the cassette player in the car auto reverse? I don't know. God, this Maybe really technical, isn't it? If it if it is the one that did the skipping of the tracks, then I think it would have been. Yeah, it was oh. very advanced. <laughs> Nuclear Annihilation track number three, and probably the biggest one of them all. And we're on two tribes, one of the biggest hits of the year. It was the fourth biggest seller of 1984. Um, and number one for nine. It seemed to be number one forever because it was number one when I finished primary school and it was still number one when I started secondary school. <laughs> so that's, that's how I remember it. And of course, Relax was number three at the same time as it was number yeah. one. Yeah. So they were just everywhere just, that whole year. Yeah. Um, and... You know, there's there's the whole story. Have you read Trevor Horn's biography yet? No, I haven't. Oh, it's fab. He talks about Paul Morley's basically remixing it every single week <laughs> to keep it in the charts. <laughs> and there was so many different variations of it, so many 12 inches and single mixes and all sorts of things that kind of kept it going. But at the heart of it is still an amazing track. It is. And I think one of the things that is often said about Frankie Goes to Hollywood is that their success was down to Paul Morley and Trevor Horn's production. Mm. And certainly, like Nile Rodgers with the Duran Duran track, which was side A track one, they elevate the material. But Frankie were playing this song years before they met them. And there's a John Peel session of them playing it in 81. It's still there. The bass line is still there. And that's really the, the driving force, the juggernaut of this whole track. Yeah. Um, I think Trevor Horn adds the the orchestral arrangement, which is brilliant and uh, is, in my understanding, is supposed to kind of represent the Russian side. So the, the big bass line is American funk and the strings and the horns and the flutes are kind of Russian classical music representing the push and pull of the two sides in the nuclear war. But it was a great song yeah. at its conception, yeah. not just because of the remixes and everything else. Patrick Allen is the man who does the public information films or did the protect and survive films. And he does the voiceover on that track as well. In the book, Trevor Horn talks about the fact that Patrick Allen had to sign an official secrets act when he did that for the government back in the late 70s. No way. And they then said, well, obviously you won't be able to use any of those vocals on this song. And I think Patrick Allen thought for about a minute and went, yeah, let's go for it. <laughs> Basically, so all of those wonderful lines about, you know... The air attack warning sounds like this is the sound. Patrick Allen was pretty much breaking the official secrets act by throwing them in there, but isn't that wonderfully pop? That's brilliant. And isn't Chris Barry from Red Dwarf one of the other voices on that song? Yeah, no, yeah. If you go to one of the 12-inch mixes, Chris Barry is Ronald Reagan. That's right, because he was on Spitting Image doing Reagan at the time, wasn't he? Yeah, it it was such a cultural moment of 1984, the t-shirt designs, everything that was in there, um, so iconic of 1984. Yeah, and Frankie were one of those bands that sounded like the future had arrived. The, The only time before that that I'd ever felt as a child that kind of this sounds like the 21st century was probably when I first heard Gary Newman. And I think certainly... People who came after them, like the Pet Shop Boys, mm. were drawing on those bank of signs. And of course, they then went to Trevor Horn and got him to do Left to My Own Devices and everything else. So yeah, the lineage begins there, doesn't it? Next up, we've got Grandmaster and Melly Mel and White Lines. We mentioned Duran Duran earlier. <laughs> we'll just put that one aside. Um, 
I was looking back at the official chart company. This was the 13th biggest selling single of the year. And it out, yeah. outsold many of the number ones of that year. Do you know when Chuck D called hip hop the black CNN? Mm. I think this is the first evidence of that. It's one of the first big socially conscious rap songs. Yeah. And the fact that it translated over here mm. is really interesting because I don't think we had the same war on drugs and the same social problems that exacerbated the way those drug laws were enforced. I mean, yeah. a big part of this song is looking at how the drug laws in America treated black and white criminals differently. There's a, there's actually a line in there about John DeLorean, the car manufacturer, right. yeah, because he was caught in an FBI sting trying to buy 24 kilos of cocaine. And that 24 kilos is referenced in the song, yeah. as is the fact that he essentially got off, not on a technicality, he, the, he was basically found to have been trapped by the law enforcement officers. But at the same time, Melly Mel is saying that a street kid gets arrested, you know, with a tiny amount of drugs and takes or gets three years inside. And I guess what made it so compelling over here was that it felt like a slice of real life. Yeah. What struck me listening back to it again is, again, how funky and rhythmic it actually is. It sounds futuristic. It's based on a sample, isn't it? There's a yeah. song called Cavern, so a like, kind of yeah. left field New York disco hit, isn't it? Yeah, the Sugar Hill Gang, um, or sorry, Sugar Hill Records, Melly Mel, Grandmaster Flash used it without the permission. If you hear the track Cavern by Liquid Liquid, it's like, oh, hello, <laughs> it's very, very similar. <laughs> yeah. um, but Liquid, uh, Liquid Liquid actually took them to court and won over half a million dollars. The Sugar Hill Records had to declare bankruptcy, so there is a bit of a sting to that story. Yeah. And of course, the sad fact that several members of the band also ended up succumbing to the drug problems that they were warning people of. Yeah. So certainly an iconic track and sold. Because again, you know, we like to dance to to songs about drugs. And, and <laughs> you know, if it wasn't nuclear annihilation, it was drug addiction. So there we go. But I think, you know, those first two tracks on this side of the cassette are timeless. They still sound oh. fresh now. Yeah. An amazing bit of sequencing. Mm. Um, especially Key and Nelson Mandela. Now that one really sticks in my head because I remember asking my parents in the car ride, who's Nelson Mandela anyway? <laughs> and that's, you know, I'd heard about nuclear war. I knew what that was. That's fine. Uh, I'd heard about the drugs problem. Yes. What? There's a third thing that's unjust in this world. Oh, you're just, you know, you're nine years old and you start to, I talked about a carefree summer, but you're starting to realise that not everything's great. It wasn't just me. I think, you know, the, the conservative government of the 80s mm. still classified Nelson Mandela as a terrorist. Yeah. And yeah. so... Uh, this record, I've heard Paul Gambaccini say this, was one that changed a lot of people's minds and started a conversation about apartheid that had been confined to the margins of the anti-apartheid movement yeah. and made it more mainstream. And, I, you know, it did so, again, in such a sunny, upbeat way. Yeah. It's not a protest song that's angry. It's just kind of a simple statement, sung beautifully. Yeah. Free Nelson Mandela. It's the moral thing to do yeah and it's an incredible lyric from jerry dammers uh yes you know, it's um you know, the, the whole idea of his body being imprisoned but his mind still being free are you so blind not to see i mean it, it's incredibly poetic i only discovered this today doing a bit of um 
creative Googling um, that Karen Wheeler from Soul to Soul is one of the vocalists on that song. She is indeed, yep. And yes. um, very famous backing session singer Claudia Fontaine as well. Oh, yes. Um, who, she was She was a part of the Soul to Soul gang as well, yeah, wasn't she? Yeah, it is just, it's just a fantastic track, it really is. And produced by Elvis Costello as well, so... It's an all-star cast. All-star cast. It's almost, it's almost a precursor to Band-Aid later that year. Love Wars by Womack and Womack. That's a great track. It is. And it was one of the ones where the title didn't ring a bell, but as soon as those kind of spooky vocals in the mm. intro hit, I was brought right back yeah. to the south of Ireland in 1984. Um, and it's not a song that's endured. It's not one that crops up on, you know, the kind of retrospective now compilations from the 80s or that you hear much on classic radio, but it's a great song. Yeah, yeah. And that that's interesting because we were talking about this 1984, the theory of 84 being such a great year. There are tracks across these four sides that you still hear. I heard today three tracks off this album at various <laughs> points in the kitchen across, uh, I won't mention which stations, but, you know, um, you still hear them. You're right, you don't hear Love Wars by Womack and Womack. It's got a very 84 US funk sound to it. Yeah, it's very Effort- Shalimar, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, kind of effortless funk sound to it. But again, it's quite a dark lyric. <laughs> yes, it's <that's> true. <laughs> um, there's a brilliant, uh, just undercutting the dark lyric, uh, if you go onto YouTube, there's an amazing clip of them performing it live on a Dutch television programme called Top Pop, which was their equivalent yeah. of Top of the Pops, uh, in a boxing ring while some dancers slug it out behind them. <laughs> Maybe a slightly too literal interpretation of the lyrics. Oh, dear. you can see Cecil and Linda going, really, we're taking this really literally, guys. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Um, number 14, which is a bit of a shocker. It was produced by Stuart Levine, who was all over mm. so much of the 80s productions, and you can hear that. I'm going to give a mention here. The follow-up was a song called Baby, I'm Scared of You, which you never, ever hear. Got to number 72, no. UK Buying Public. Shame on you. But if you haven't heard Baby, I'm Scared of You by Womack and Womack listeners, I would thoroughly recommend it. It's an amazing track. Where are we next? Uh, Stella Council, You're the Best Thing. Second single off Cafe Blue. Um, sandwiched nicely between ever-changing moods and shout to the top. I think this was one of the skips for me. And I like it now. The Stella Council were fine, weren't they? Yeah. That's, that's the best I can say. <laughs> There's that whole 80s thing of doing pop but putting a bit of jazz in it. Mm. and not really getting the jazz bit right. Hang on, are we are we blaming Paul Weller for Sophisti-Pop now? We I mean, he was in the thick of it. I don't think it was necessarily his idea. No, no. I don't but he was mean, there. Yeah. But you could see how the best and the worst of it could come out of that. Yeah, the kind of slight jazz. I went back, actually, and I, I, I had a listen to Cafe Blue album. It's not an easy listen. There's a lot of... And I think even for Style Council fans, I think they avoided the single mixes... It was slight jazz reinterpretations. It was almost kind of... See, I'm out of my comfort zone here because I didn't listen to it at the time and I've never really been compelled to go back to it because, I mean, I should, just for the sake of completion because I love the jam and I love Paul Weller's solo stuff, but it's never grabbed me. No, and I've not done a sales pitch there either, have I? (laughs) (laughs) There's There's no single mixes and it's all a bit jazzy. Actually, there's there's a really nice track with Tracy Thorne on. I will say that, but there we go. So yeah, so right, so Bob Marley and the Whalers. Um, we are three years since the passing of Bob Marley, and Island Records pulled together what is potentially the best best of ever in yeah. Legend, and it resonates. It absolutely hits home, 
and 12 weeks at number one in the summer of 84 and the spring and potentially the autumn as well. Um, and here, this was the single that was released to trail it. Yeah, my sister, who, like I said, was about four or five at the time, just loved this. Anytime it would come on in the house, she would just spin around in a kind of sense of bliss. And that's how I remember that song. And funnily enough, my son does the same now with Three Little Birds. Yeah. Just, you can't beat the joyousness of listening to Bob Marley when he's in that mood. And my introduction to Bob Marley was this. Not much later than that, it was probably hearing the Legend album. It's one of those best ofs that is sequenced perfectly. And again, this to me just says Summer 84. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember the day that my sister's copy of the vinyl cracked. And like you could pull it apart and see the gap between the two sides. And she would still put it on Mm -hmm. and still have the same reaction, even though every rotation of the disc, there'd be a... Oh, Oh my goodness. (laughs) All the way through it. And by that point, you know, this is the 80s. It had gone out of print. So you just had to listen to it like that. There was no other way except on this cassette. If you haven't seen the video, uh, Don Letts produced a video for it. Um, and it's great. And Paul McCartney pops up in it, as does Suggs and Aswad and Musical Youth and Banana Rama. There's great footage of King's Road and, you know, that kind of wonderful mm. cultural impact of reggae. It just, it's just lovely. And of course, the sun shining because it was 1984. <laughs> <which is> perfect. <laughs> and then finishing off side two, an absolute 80s classic. <laughs> It's a bit of a whiplash in style from One Love to this. Yeah. And yet it also kind of works. Like I can still in my mind hear the fade out of One Love and this beginning. Yeah. So it's a clever bit of juxtaposition from the guys at Now who were sequencing it. I mean, it's such an evocative song. So personal for Jimmy Somerville because Mm -hmm. it is essentially his autobiography, isn't it? The visualisation of a, a young gay man running away from home to the big city where he could finally be himself. Yeah. But what that means in leaving behind your parents and the approval of your family and and all of that stuff, all set against the backdrop of the debate over Section 28, which was going on at the time, which would make it even harder for gay people in the UK for for decades. Um, We probably don't realise it now, and I certainly didn't at the time because I wasn't aware of the context, but it's an incredibly brave song. Yeah, the passing of time... I think has maybe taken away the the impact of what that what that meant in 1984 because it was an incredibly important statement that was being made. Yeah, it, it was, and I do wonder if maybe that's why it's hidden away at the mm. end of one of the sides because it is yeah. still quite a controversial, in inverted commas, statement to have made. That's a really good point. Actually, I hadn't thought about that. Very interesting, and a, a song you still hear. So, so much. My kids performed it at their end of year concert in year seven. Imagine how far you've had to travel to get from that being a dangerous song to release or or Mm. at least a controversial song to release Mm -hmm. to it just being part of a Christmas play. So let's flip over to side three and we kick off on my record here that says track 16, which is just like very confusing, but there we are. It is uh, side three, track one. It's Queen and I want to break free. 
Now, what do you think about the fact that this comes after Small Town Boy, if you look at the track listing as a whole? Because obviously the subject matter is similar, but sung from the point of view of a closeted man. Absolutely. This was a track that caused Queen all sorts of problems, um, particularly in the US. Who would have thought Coronation Street could cause so much trouble? I, and it's, <laughs> we should explain that, we shouldn't should we? We should explain the fact that the video, <laughs> uh, famously directed by David Mallet, very famous um, video director of the 80s, uh, basically recreated Coronation Street and dressed up the four members of Queen as female characters that we all recognised in this country as a soap opera. Even the video starts with the row of houses. It pans over a row yeah. of terrace houses. It starts with a teas made boiling. It's the beginning of a of a of a soap opera. However, certain territories didn't take kindly <laughs> to the image of Freddie Mercury. By which you mean America? Well, okay, America, then yeah. Only America. Let's be honest. Um, Freddie Mercury in a tight leather miniskirt. <laughs> Doing the hoovering has never looked oh, it's so fabulous. Cool. It's it's fa- <laughs> for me, and I, and I think actually, yeah, we mentioned Paul Gambaccini earlier. Um, I remember Paul talking about this on one of the programs. There's a bit where Freddie does a slight run from the kitchen into the living room, and it is just an incredible move, probably completely unchoreographed, just Freddie doing Freddie, and it's just fabulous. And Roger Taylor, what an amazing pair of legs! Yeah, I'm going to say that right, right now. What a amazing <laughs> pair of legs Roger Taylor has. They should get him on Drag Race next. Oh, that'd be amazing. There is an amazing quote, Brian May talking about that video and the reaction to it on NPR, the, the American public radio station, mm. where he said, everywhere else around the world, people laughed and got the joke, but we were on a promo tour in the Midwest of America and people's faces turned ashen. Yeah. And they said, no, we can't play this. We can't possibly play this. It looks homosexual and he he says it he whispers it the way they would have said it to him and you just think gosh because i guess over here we have a history of drag and of pantomime dames and of campness Mm. and they just didn't appreciate that in america that that would be seen as so subversive i know this song was a pop song a big shiny pop song and it's a weird pop song because brian may's guitar solo is all backwards isn't mm-hmm. it it's back masked yeah and yeah. then they follow that up with what i can only describe as a wobble board solo so while you know the verses are absolute tin pan alley earworm pop yeah. the queen always had a little bit of something odd going oh, on yeah yeah absolutely because they were studio creatures really weren't yeah. they as great a front man as he was brian may and john deacon who wrote this one lived for the studio yeah and let's not forget, this This was a big comeback for Queen after Radio Gaga. You know, the whole Works album yeah. was was an amazing, you know, you kind of forget how um, Hot Space really hadn't resonated with the UK buying public yeah. in 82. And it, this was a big comeback, mm-hmm. definitely. And number three, another number three single was Time After Time by Cyndi Lauper. Now, I've just praised the sequencing, but it's weird to go into a ballad, such a big ballad as track two. Mm. But what a song. I almost don't want to say anything about it because it's just perfect. It is a perfect yeah. song and perfectly delivered because Cindy Lauper has such a powerful voice, mm. but she is the model of restraint in this and the restraint tells you all of the emotion. She is quiet when she wants to be loud. Mm. And that is that is what the song is about. It is about letting go of your own ego to look, af- look after someone else. Yeah, It shows the versatility of Cindy Lauper, that in the UK, this was the follow-up to Girls Just Want to Have Fun, which is a manic, joyful pop 
sensation. And then next to it is this, which, which as you say, it's, it's reserved, it's controlled, it's measured. It's a wonderful, wonderful ballad. And rightfully so, we still hear plenty of times uh, across radio stations today. Yeah, absolutely. And followed up, though, on track three with a song that you should hear more of yeah. on the radio. I feel like Alison Moyet is a really overlooked British artist. I know. This was Alison Moyet's debut solo single. It's a fantastic song, Love Resurrection. Do you think this this still sounds fresh? I, I do. I do. I mean, it's got that 80s touch to it, yeah. but the 80s is so much back in vogue that it kind of works. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways, if... Alison Moyet hadn't ended up in a huge legal battle with Sony. She would be one of our biggest artists. Yeah. She was an Adele oh, yeah. for, for that period of 84 to 85. Yeah. She had huge ballads and she'd got the voice and the personality. She cropped up on French and Saunders all the time, yeah. taking the piss out of herself, yeah. but also being able to blow people away with her voice. Yeah. She's an incredible singer. And she's still going. I know. I mean, I make it sound like she's disappeared off the face of the planet, but I think she could have been even bigger. Yeah, that 84 to 87 run between the ALF album and Rain Dancing, would that be right? Yeah, that's I mean, the one. That, that, that's an amazing run, rightfully recognised for that. But yeah, a warm injection as well, I need to calm the pain. Always wondered about that line. <laughs> I'm just going to leave best left to your imagination. I think just going to leave that one there. Didn't didn't at the time, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, um, moving swiftly on, the Bluebells singing Bananarama. Yeah, because it's from the Deep Sea Skiving their yeah, debut album. Deep sea Bobby Hodgins, who was in the Bluebells, was Siobhan's boyfriend. Yeah. Number eight this time round. Number one in 1993, thanks to Volkswagen. Great album as well, the Bluebells album from 1984, album called Sisters. Yeah, and what I loved about them, watching them on top of the pops, because we talked about the otherworldliness mm-hmm. of Duran Duran. The Bluebells were the opposite. Yeah. And, it, you know, even as a nine-year-old, I kind of realised that these nerdy kid in glasses having a number one single gave all the rest of us hope. Yeah. Previous guest on the podcast, Grant McPhee, film director Grant McPhee, oh, yeah. uh, made a wonderful set of films um, a few years back about the 80s indie Glasgow Edinburgh scene and released a book uh, which is a fabulous book about that kind of story of uh, 70s, 80s indie in Scotland. So Grant was doing a book reading uh, through in Glasgow. Uh, it must have been last autumn. And I went through and Robert Hodgins was there. And, you know, I was still super excited <laughs> to just actually be in the same room and still looks exactly the same and still still making music bluebells as well, which is, which is fabulous. I'm going to just shout out for Claire Grogan in the video because she looked fabulous. Why not? <laughs> She looks great in the cafe. Well, I didn't know Bobby Valentino, who plays the violin, that great violin solo, finally got credited as co-author in 2002. Oh, that's interesting. There we go. So there's now five riders on it. Yeah. Uh, right, so actually, we, what we, we didn't mention the producers Jolly and Swain on Love Resurrection, mm-hmm. but they pop up again on Bananarama. All of those three tracks are tied together thematically. Yeah. Robert De Niro's Waiting. Talking Italian. Talking Italian. This still sounds great. And again, th- this in my head is 1984 personified. Bananarama looked brilliant. And it's just, it's got that non-global annihilation feel to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although there was an interview that Siobhan Fahey did when she reunited with the band about seven or eight years ago, where she said that the lyrics to this were about date rape. That's right. Yeah. And then Sarah said, that's a load of rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> it's about hero worship. Yeah. It's an interesting parallel universe bananarama isn't it this 
album in particular that Robert De Niro's Waiting and Rough Justice mm. come from, they're evolving into a very mature pop band yep. who are dealing with darker tones and more sophisticated harmonies. They ditch that eventually, obviously, and go all in with Stock Aiken Waterman. Mm. But it would have been very interesting to see how they continued along this path if they hadn't yeah. switched lanes yeah. so dramatically. Yeah, because actually some of those kind of 84, 85 singles before Venus, some some really interesting tracks. Do Not Disturb is a really good track, um, which you don't hear yeah. very often. Trick of the Night, another great track as well. It didn't resonate so much with the buying public, but they're great songs. They are, and they've aged better. I mean, Cruel Summer, obviously, which is their big US hit, sounds fresher today than any of the Stockick and Waterman yeah. productions, which are so rooted in the technology of the 80s. Yeah. And there's something a bit more organic about Bananarama at this point. Yeah. So a very, very big hit, pizza delivery in the video, being chased <laughs> by a pizza man, because obviously that's Italian, pizza, Robert De Niro. And wasn't there also, there was an alternative video for this, in at the deep end, mm. the BBC One kind of documentary series where they got some of the presenters of That's Life with Esther Ranson to go out and every week they had to learn a new profession. That's right. And one of those professions was being a video director. And they made a black and white clip for Robert De Niro's wedding. Yeah. Very moody, lots of smoke in the street lights. And they brought it to the head of Top of the Pops at the time and he said, no, I would never play That's this. Probably- and so they had to scrap the whole thing and do it again and- with the pizza delivery guy. And then because of That's Life, they got a dog saying sausages. And, and then... Yeah. Was, <laughs> that in Italian, though. In Ita- well, yeah, Italian sausage. It was salami. <laughs> there we are. And again, <laughs> Pop Kids are really referencing things now. That's Life and Talking Dogs. There we go. <laughs> This is what the kids want. Bang up to this date. is what the kids of 2023 want. There we go. Right, so we've had ZTT earlier, which was Frankie, and here we've got ZTT again, Propaganda and Dr. Mabuse. Do you think this song is included on this compilation because they had to license it in order to get the Frankie Goes to Hollywood track? <laughs> the buy one, get one free. Possibly, but I'm wondering, yeah, because... Two Tribes was the number one single at the time of Now Three being released, which is always the coup, because then the advert, you've got the number one single, so you're selling bucket loads. This was Propaganda's debut single. It is a big, epic 80s thing. It only got to number 27. It is still a good song, and the Propaganda tracks, you know, this and Jewel in particular, Mm. stand the test of time. But the Now series seems really invested in them because both of those songs still crop up on, like, you know, the yearbooks that they've been releasing recently for 84 and 85. And it's kind of prominence that isn't gained by their relevance or their popularity at the time. Yeah. It was part of the kind of 84 zeitgeist in some ways. Looking at the sequencing between Bananarama and Tina Turner, which we're going to come to in a second, it doesn't sit comfortably. No. Although... I mean, I think if you lifted it out, Bananarama into Tina Turner wouldn't have quite worked either. No. Um, listening back to it now, I mean, I have very little bad things to say, but I love it. I really do. I like it. I like it a lot as well. It's just, it feels like an outlier in terms, yeah. uh, until we get to the very end of this compilation, well, which, yeah. as we will learn, is, oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, and there is a link between this track and that song as well. This video was directed by Anton Corbin. In ah. fact, it was one of his first video productions and still very much an ongoing concern, although they now have an X at the beginning of their name, ex-propaganda, mm. um, and Claudia and Suzanne and Steve Lipson back together last year and created a wonderful album. So, um, Right, Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it? 
the song that could have been Bucks Fizz's biggest hit. And I haven't managed to hear it yet, but I believe Bobby G sings it. Um, yeah, that's right. Because that's what I've heard. it was deemed not to be a song for a female vocalist. That's so weird, isn't it? Isn't it? Because I think allegedly Jay Aston wanted to give it a go. Don't know if, she, if, if they demoed it, but somebody had said, no, that's not, doesn't sound like a woman's song. And you know who else rejected it as well? Go on. Cliff Richard. I can hear the difference as well between his whoa, whoa, whoa yes. and Tina Turner's. Yeah. His would have been a bit more swallowed, wouldn't it? I can it? also see the hand movements, Cliff grabbing for <laughs> things that aren't there in the air. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so obviously written by Teddy Britton and Graham Lyle from Gallagher and Lyle, so it's you know, it's got a kind of history pedigree, this song. I think offered to Donna Summer as well. It's fascinating, isn't it, how the songs can change hands mm. so many times. Yeah. Have you seen the, the BBC doc documentary about Tina in the UK? Um, it was on Christmas. Yes. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, it's marvellous. It was so good. I know I talked about Alison Moyet being underappreciated, and obviously Tina Turner is a multi-platinum selling worldwide superstar. And yet, I don't feel like she is mentioned in the same breath as Stevie Wonder or Stevie Nicks yeah. or people who aren't called Stevie. And yet her interpretation of songs, the life experience that she pours into them, yeah. the longevity of her career... She should be up there in the pantheon. I know, look, and you know, this is a song that's in the Songwriters Hall of Fame and in the Grammy Hall of Fame, and she has a biopic and a stage musical named after her and named after this song. And yeah, I still don't. Yeah. I feel like she could be more appreciated. Oh yeah, at the twenty seventh Grammys, uh, record of the year, song of the year, best female pop performance. I mean, it swept the board. I think what's interesting for me as well is that you know reinvention, the kind of rebirth of, of of Tina Turner, very much came from the UK with the work of 17 mm. and the British Electric Foundation. and But this song, and it, maybe it's because of the video, that New York video, it's so iconically American. You know? yeah. and, and, and it was that kind of reclamation of, of the US taking Tina back and saying, she's here. Yeah. As now compilations go, the number of stone-cold platinum-plated classics mm. is very high. Yeah. You know what? Probably a better version than Bucks Fizz would have done Bless their hearts. I was a big Bucks Fizz fan. Oh, yeah. That album that this would presumably have gone on to was I Hear Talk, which was their last yeah. real stab at remaining relevant and has dated very badly. And I know there are Bucks Fizz fans on social media who will crucify <laughs> me for saying that. Um, just to rectify that, the I Hear Talk 12-inch remix <laughs> is one of the things that I played obsessively on the drums because they isolate the drum track and there's an amazing drum solo that I learned by heart. But they could have done with what's love got to do with it on that album. Yeah, actually, yeah. And I think I think you've just pulled that back brilliantly there, Mark, to be honest. You've absolutely you pulled <laughs> the fizz back into relevance there. Um, Mamba Sarah, I'll say that, New Beginning. Oh, yeah, New Beginning. Bang, and that's a 12-inch. Whoa. Oh, yeah, totally. Crikey. Right, but okay, before we let Bucks Fizz completely take over now, three. Oh, yeah, uh, fast forward button, ahoy. Uh, flying pickets, <laughs> when you're young and in love. I mean... Not only is this a compulsory fast forward, but when you get to side four, track one, you know exactly why it's a compulsory fast exactly. forward. And the time it's taken Mark and I to say that we have fast forwarded and we're on side because we're not going to see another <laughs> flying pickets. We're going to move on. Wake me up before you go, go! Exclamation mark! What do you say? Do you know the only thing I've written down is that the terrible secret of Wham songs is that they're impossible to dance to. <laughs> 
<laughs> because in my dark, dark days as a wedding DJ, you would put on this or freedom and everybody would rush up to the floor. And then they'd look very awkward as they tried to work out where the beat fell. Because although George Michael was obsessed with dance music mm. and with American funk, these early songs did not have it no. in the way that something like Freedom 90 did. No, no. But I would sing this song until the cows came home. You know how it's one of these videos that's just ingrained in your memory? Mm. But I'd forgotten the opening of the video with silhouettes of Pete yeah. and Shirley and George and Andrew. That was just brilliant. So, so this was Andrew's message to his parents that he'd left a scribbled note to say, wake me up before you go and written go twice. He alleges it's a, it's a typo, but you and I both know that go, go was a, was a going concern of music in 1984. And I think George Michael knew that. Yes. Very likely. I'd never made that connection. Uh, there was a track. We talk about hits albums fans. There was a track on hits two by little Benny and the masters who comes to boogie. And that was part of that kind of go, go scene. And that was very much the kind of underground dance scene. And that, I think it's an amazing bit of wordplay from George. Yeah, and he's underrated as a lyricist. You know, often, particularly on the Wham songs, mm -hmm. they, they can seem a bit nonsensical, but they've got a way of burrowing into your brain. Yeah. Just the repetition of the word jitterbug in this song. It means nothing, mm -hmm. but as soon as you hear it, yeah. you're transported. Yeah. Any song that has the line, you make the sunshine brighter than Doris Day, and again, that was, you know, referencing the 50s and the 80s was a big thing. So George Michael, very, very clever, the way he was tying up all of that imagery and the Motown feel and everything. I mean, it's just fabulous. Wham! had made a big splash with their first album and Club Tropicana and Young Guns Go For It. But the evolution of their sound between that and Make It Big, mm. where they became, to all intents and purposes, like a stadium act, probably the first pop stadium act yeah. of that ilk is huge and it was done in britain we've become conditioned into thinking of america as the place that breeds pop stars and in 1984 they were it was as we've said already the the year of madonna and michael jackson and prince becoming larger than life superstars but wham did it too yeah and wham were a stadium act and wham went out on a high yeah Absolutely. Um, and of course, the rest of 84 was pretty much sewn up for George Michael anyway, because this was a hit. This was number one in April, May. And then you've got Careless Whisper, and then you've got Freedom, and then you've got Band-Aid. So it's like, you know, woof, all the way through. Um, and Last Christmas, of course, as well. Yeah, and everything course. she wants. So they straddle into 85, completely unstoppable as well. Um, the video as well, just thinking back, and again, just when you're pulling stuff together, Quite a few Wham videos with that club feel, you know, that kind of fans club. Yeah. And it was, you, know, you think, this was that one, I'm Your Man and um, Edge of Heaven. That kind of wonderful giving back to the fans type thing. And they were, they were a live band. Yeah. I think that's easy to forget as well. And a lot of, you know, pop acts now sometimes aren't. But Duran Duran could play live and Wham were a, a great live band. But the horn section and Pepsi and Shirley, yeah. I never saw any of them because nobody came to... Ireland, mm. but just watching videos of them, you realise how accomplished they it's were. Amazing. So, track two on side four, or track 25 on my record, randomly, uh, Thompson <laughs> Twins, uh, You Take Me Up. Well, I don't know about you, but I know what it means to work hard on machines. Oh, no idea. Every single day. I mean, I cry in my sleep, I tell you. <laughs> this was single three off Into the Gap, but surprisingly, a number two single. You don't hear it much anymore. You don't you don't hear much Thompson Twins uh, anymore. I do love this song, and maybe just because of this compilation, because I never had 
a Thompson Twins single mm-hmm. or album. Mm-hmm. And that line sticks in my head, I think, because it's such a clunky piece of lyric writing. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it's just a lovely kind of yeah. rhythmic piece of delivery. It's actually as well, for a long time, the Thompson Twins were seen as that kind of antipathy of the 80s. I think now we've got beyond that, to be honest, and can recognise that pop sensibility of of what Tom Bailey does. Yeah. I mean, I guess the thing that turns people off them is the hairspray, because they were voluminous consumers of hairspray. But their writing is solid. Oh, yeah. You take from kind of 83 through to the end of 85, and that's a pretty imperial run of tracks. Yeah, and they played the LA leg of Live Aid. That's something I think people always forget, you know, because they were big enough to draw a crowd over there. And also to back Madonna. Now, just going to pause for a second to see, often side four on a now album can be quite random. Just (laughs) keep that thought, listeners, as we work through some of these tracks. Because we then jump to The Weather Girls um, and It's Raining Men. This is the last good song on the compilation. (gasps) Controversial. (laughs) Possibly right Um, Yeah, this was Martha Wash and Isora Armstead Who had been Sylvester's backing band, Two Tons of Fun And now morphed into the Weather Girls This had been released in the US in 1982 I didn't know that either I mean, I think the thing that really strikes me about this Like, particularly going back to the first two sides of this now compilation Is so many songs on this record sound like an end-of-term politics essay And this is just two women tearing up the studio and having the time of their lives. And that and Wake Me Up Before You Go Go kind of point the way forward for the rest of the 80s. Things did get a lot more superficial and upbeat and fun after this. And I was there for it. Because when you're 9, 10, 11, that's what you want. You want pop music to be happy, not about nuclear war. And it feels like, although this side four is quite random, these two tracks, Wham and The Weather Girls are kind of the new guard coming in, aren't they? Yeah. Indicative of the of the form, yeah. I guess. So No, I'm sounding like an end of terms politics essay. <laughs> the thesis on two tons of fun slash whaler girls. Um Donna Summer had hang on, is that right? I'm gonna no Tina Turner. She'd not back Tina Turner. She also allegedly not back this, as did Cher, Diana Ross and Barbara Streisand. I mean, I can hear Donna Summer singing it. Those other three feel a bit... Yeah. What a Barbara Streisand version of It's Raining Men have sounded like. <laughs> it would, um, no, no, no. I'm leaving a pause here because we've got Gary Glitter next. That's only if we're going canonical. If you take the re-release, <laughs> that song no longer appears. Gary Glitter has been written out of the history of Now 3, so we'll move back. Uh, do, do you know what? In some ways I'm glad because there's nothing to say about it whatsoever. It's just an abysmal song. It's not. And actually now with, with the, the passing of time, it's even more abysmal. But there we go. Now, the art company and Susanna. It's. Do you know what I really dislike about this song? The fake crowd noise? Yes. Yeah, well, I've written in my notes about James Last. Right. Yes. He's telling a story essentially of trying to grope someone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he's the crowd are going, Yeah! Woohoo! You go for it. And uh, I don't even think you need the perspective of time to know that that is not right. That was just not right in nineteen. Shame on you, British UK buying public to put it to number twelve. How dare you? (laughs) Um scarily enough, Ricky Martin covered this. Yes, so I heard. Yeah, just know that it's there. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Uh, We're almost at the end of the album. The second last track is Madness. It's One Better Day. Madness had seen better days. Well, yeah. 
But I am going to wave a slight flag for this. Madness obviously had had a sterling run of hits. I think there is something autumnally good about this track. Work with me on this, Mark. No, no, I'll, I'll listen to your reasoning no, and then I will judge. It's, no, it's, it's, <laughs> I, it's, well, see, at the time, Madness were in what was perhaps beginning to be called a late period of their career. However, Madness have gone on to exist forever, so they haven't actually stopped. But, um, but at this point, they were they were moving into slightly more serious territory, songwriting-wise, you know, the, as I say, autumnal feel to it, often compared to the kinks and that type of English sensibility of pop writing. It's got lovely string work on it. I think it's quite nice as well. It's, it's mm. nice. How did that sound? I agree with you on that. And and, and Suggs remains a great lyricist. Mm. Uh, you know, this is a story of um, two older homeless people meeting each other and finding solace in each other. And it's it's very evocative and it's very moving. And the coda, the walking around you, sometimes you hear the sunshine. The melody in that is beautiful, mm. but it's very much a minor Madness hit. It is, and it's a number 17 Madness hit, so there was obviously concerns at the record company. Although I think actually after this, Madness left Stiff Records and created their own, but that's what you do, you create your own record label. It has a kind of slight, we're sliding out of the end of the album feel for now three. Yes, definitely. When I when I went to the, the compilation session for Now 100, there was a point after we got to track eight, where one of the teams said, well, we've used up all the big hits now, now we're into the mids. <laughs> and that was only a one-disc compilation. I think we're beyond the mids now. Yeah. Again, you know, you have to contextualise this. Record company politics, there were, there were certain bands that were still big going concerns, big acts that were seen as big going concerns, and therefore were jostling for position on these albums. And I think it's probably fair to say that David Sylvian's debut single, excited a lot of people from that point of view. This was something new. This was the front man of Japan. I'll hand over to you, Mark. Yes, I had written the same biographical details that you had. (laughs) And then I wrote, it is the worst of everything the 1980s had to offer. (laughs) Self-serious, pretentious jazz overtones, fretless bass guitar, soulless production, etc. What are you trying to say? (laughs) I didn't like it. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to tell two stories here. Right, The first one... In 1984, I could not connect to this at all. As an 11-year-old pop fan, this was a foreign language to me. Now, I can see the aesthetics of it. But as an 11-year-old, this said nothing to me. No. And maybe that 11-year-old is still in charge of my opinion on this song. (laughs) Now, I have confessed like 10 minutes ago to being a dyed-in-the-bull-box-fizz fan, even at this point where they were on their diners badly on their diners but i just i don't think this sort of music is ever going to connect with me and i'm sorry i did love japan Mm. but i think there is too much going on in this song and at the same time nothing to it and again a number 17 hit so mm. but you can see what (laughs) you can see why now would want to put this on there but equally i'm having one of those imaginary team meetings of now when they're kind of being given the single of it and listening to it and going, where are we going to put that? We're going to put it at the end of side four. Is where we're going to put that. <laughs> um, and, and yeah. I think as well, you know, we've talked about the fact that there were rivalries between Now and the hits, which at this point would have been in the planning stage. Mm. There's a very obvious fact that this album could have been 
stuffed with hits from the Footloose movie. Yeah. People are people by Depeche Mode or Shaka Khan's Ain't Nobody, all songs that were big in the charts at the same time. And when you don't have access to those, this is what it's, makes yeah. it onto the track list. And, and that's where already you're starting to see those record company politics contacting CBS and Warner and they go, no, you're not having that. Because you can go back to Now 2 and the first Now album, there's plenty of tracks from those record labels on that. And But now yeah. it's like, no, actually, we are strategically planning for the fourth quarter of 1984, our own compilation album. And that's starting to impact. And it makes an even bigger impact on Now 4. Now 4, at the end of the year, gets the runner-up spot at number two in the album charts, which must have caused major consternation. Yeah. How long is it? I've known this in the past, but I don't have the fact to hand. At what point do they give up and join forces? It's not for at least 10 or 15 oh, it's years. it's quite a while. It? The Hits album, as a Sony concern, wound up around about the end of 92. And it wasn't until Universal Music picked it back up. But that's that's quite late on. I think that's going into the kind of early noughties, I think. So you've got quite a while before it becomes, you know, the war is over and we're now just championing it with everybody. <laughs> um, but then, you know, you might have lost something that is an underappreciated gem. Mm. You, you, might, you might even have lost... Well, maybe not Robert De Niro's Waiting. You know, maybe one of those earlier tracks. Mm-hmm. I'm just scrolling through it now, like the Style Council song or the Womack and Womack song, yep. which are still worthy of listening to and are now preserved for posterity because they're on this record. And sometimes the rivalry helps. Sometimes the rivalry gives you more choice. It, yeah, and it probably opened up doors for some acts that, that would have been missed. And yeah. again, what it does do is it provides that time capsule snapshot that, that we wouldn't have had otherwise, which is always interesting to look at. Yeah. I'm still back on that beach in Tremor. Not listening to David Sylvian. Not listening, no. I've gone right back to One Love now. What are the standout tracks for you now? I think, honestly, it's the same as it was then. The Reflex is the song for me on that record because it is insanely good. Mm. It's 80s before the 80s got too big. It knows that it's a bit daft, but it's enjoying being a bit daft. And Simon Le Bon, for those two years, was essentially a god. Yeah. There's a moment in that concert film that you referenced earlier. I remember watching it, I think, on BBC Two, and I was about nine or ten. And he's playing to a stadium. You see a helicopter take off. Mm with the stadium in the background. And you wonder, well, what's this for? And then there's a moment in Save a Prayer and he just thrusts his palm into the air. And at the same time, some guy in the helicopter shines a laser beam. So it looks like it's come out of his hand. And to me, that just blew my mind. That was the most exciting rock and roll thing you could ever hope to do. And obviously concerts have come on a long way since then, but I still don't think... In my mind or my experience, anyone has ever equaled that bit of stagecraft. Yeah. To me, the reflex just sums up everything about 1984. It's, it was so aspirational. It was so shiny and technicolor. There are sounds and feelings on that track that I still don't know how they were made. And I don't want to know. I wouldn't want to know how Nile Rodgers made some of those sounds. Just like the fact that this is just this wonderful mystery sound of 84. 
I suspect Nal Rogers doesn't remember either. Don't, judging from what I read I of those two years in his autobiography. <laughs> now Rogers leans on the mixing desk, makes the reflex. <laughs> What's yours? Is it the same? I'm just looking down the track list now, actually. The reflex. I'm going to take Sister Sledge because I can't think of a sunnier track that just sums up carefree times than that. Mm. Um, and do you know what? I'm just going to take Frankie because Frankie's just an adrenaline rush. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great song. And I think, you know, the journalist in me is saying, oh, yeah, it probably should be Two Tribes or White Lines because they're important mm, songs. Mm. But the pop fan in me just goes, I want that adrenaline rush. Yeah. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on the Back to Now podcast and heading back to quite a gloriously sunny and only mildly globally annihilating summer of 1984. That was brilliant fun. It's good, isn't it? <laughs> I should have been in pieces after listening to this compilation. I don't know what was going on. I, th- I think what we've done is, yeah, we've kind of created a thesis of trauma. That, that's what we'll call it. The thesis of trauma that is, that is now three, dressed up in <laughs> pop sensibility. Story of my life. Uh-huh. Mark, thanks so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. 